Welcome to the Touching Into Presence podcast. This podcast is for people who are interested in bodywork, empowerment, and somatic-based practices. I am Nikki Olson. I'm Andrew Rosenstock. We are certified rolfers. Collectively, we're trained in various movement and bodywork therapies with an emphasis on somatic awareness and client resilience. Through conversations, our goal is to share and explore mind-body paradigms to offer empowerment possibilities. It's such a pleasure to be in conversation today with Kevin McCarthy. Kevin is a somatic experiencing practitioner, advanced rolfer, and rolf movement practitioner, specializing in the effects of trauma and chronic pain on the body. Fascinated with the interplay in the body between emotional patterns and physiological adaptations that commonly emerge in the response to traumatic events, Kevin was led to study somatic experiencing after 10 years as a manual and movement therapist. He views the integration of somatic approaches into the wider field of trauma work as a crucial and necessary element in the healing process of those suffering from the effects of trauma. In 2017, Kevin co-founded Men Therapy, a thriving private practice in Minneapolis, Minnesota, with his wife, Carrie Miller, a licensed marriage and family therapist, specifically to address this relationship between somatic and psychotherapeutic approaches to trauma. Men Therapy offers an integrated model of care alongside a commitment to compassion and hope for all those who have been affected by trauma. He regularly consults with and educates health providers, manual therapists, and psychotherapists on the importance and role of somatic intervention in the effective management of trauma. In today's conversation, we spoke about Kevin's experience as a rolfer and somatic experience practitioner, what we may be doing as rolfers and or other bodywork modalities outside of normative models of touch and manual manipulations, social media on the bodily experience, working with trauma, enhancing agency and clients, reframing, and just so much more. As your hair up points, I get a little bit uh, geeky out as I really enjoy conversations with Kevin. This is not our first. And so I do apologize for any of the bromance and or uh, crushing that happens from my side. I do get a bit excited, as you'll hear. Uh, but it was a really great talk. And we really appreciate Kevin and his perspective on this model and way of seeing. Anyways, enough of me blabbering on here. Let's begin the talk. Hi, guys. Hey, Hi. Kevin. How are you guys doing? Good. Doing great. How about yourself? I'm good. I'm trying to see if there's enough signal out here. It's, it's better than the last time. I'll tell you that. <laughs> That's something, right? You look great. I got to say, you look you look great. So it's just since the last time I saw you. I don't know if the beard's different. I got, a, I got the beard going on now. Is that, is that what it is? Yeah, I like That's it. All. That's all. I, I like it. <laughs> good. I'm glad. <laughs> I'm I'm excited to, to to be in conversation with you because we've had a few conversations before, and I remember actually remember getting off the phone with you and being super amped, and getting off the phone with someone I think the day before, and being super exhausted, and and it was really helpful for me to start to sort of look at my own self regulation in the process of being in relation with people. Uh, so I'm really grateful for you uh, for that. Um, and I think that theme is going to probably come in a bit today. Uh, That's great. Yeah. Why don't you tell us a little bit about you? Yeah. Uh, well, I started, I, I guess I got certified in 2007 uh, in Boulder for most of the training and had just come off of 
working on an ambulance. So I had kind of a ramped up nervous system and I was learning how to slow down. Um, and Rolfing is very good at that. You spend a lot of time in a small room with people, uh, not talking too much. So that was my practice for five or 10 years uh, as I kind of did basic 10 series work and then started doing a lot of studying with um, kind of manual approaches. So I was doing a lot of work with Ron Murray and some stuff with Ray McCall and some um, source point at that point. So I did kind of a gamut of continuing ed and then 10 years or so in, you know, I always had a struggling practice. I was not able to draw a ton of interest or excitement. Um, even though I felt like the work was good and the people I did get to work with were good, it wasn't clicking for me as much as I needed it to. Uh, and I started getting pretty insecure about that, I think, um, 10 years in and started asking people uh, what it's like to be in pain and to want to get better and to be working and paying money to get better and then not always feeling those results. And what happened was people started talking to me about their problem, their, how it felt to be in pain, where the pain had affected them in their lives, how the pain, how they remembered being in pain for in different ways over the years. And these conversations started stretching out in the beginning of these, um, in the beginning of these sessions to 20 minutes and then 30 minutes and then 45 minutes of an hour long session. And the wild piece was that uh, they would stand up when I decided I had to get them on the table in order to earn my paycheck and they'd stand up looking better. Um, their, their postures were a little more free. They were a little more upright. They had what looked a little bit like what I was hoping to see when they got off the table before I had ever touched them. And I had no idea what was going on, but I had some sense that it had to do with emotions and I had some sense that it had to do with how they were relating to their own experience, mostly of pain, but I kind of expanded that definition over time. Uh, and then I found somatic experiencing as kind of a, a process that fit the language I was already thinking in around trauma and chronic pain. And that um, was a pretty natural dovetail into the work that I had thought I was doing and finished that in 2017. And then um, I've been practicing that for the last five years. Uh, and then in COVID, I had to go. I had been a hybrid Rolfer SE practitioner for three years and then COVID hit and decided to go fully virtual, which I promised I'd never do. Uh, and then ended up really liking it. And so now I'm considering transitioning back into hybrid practice, but I've been full-time uh, telehealth for three years now. Yeah, I really like that. And in, in the article coming out in the journal that I, I read where you're like, uh, I'm going to mis misrepresent the words, but you're like, don't don't tell yourself, uh, don't swear you won't do anything, uh, you know, because right. you always swear you wouldn't. And then you found yourself doing that, which is in some way a place I've actually been a lot of like, and it's a little different way of looking at really non-absolutism and, and being like, don't don't say you won't, but don't also like don't necessarily say you will, because this this polarity is is not the way that the world works and that it just ends up uh, coming back and, and it can end up coming back. See, even that right there, it does. No, no, no. It can come back in. But, but I mean, similar, the same for me as I I was like, when a pandemic hit, I was like, oh, crap, I'm dead. Like, I'm, how am I going to work online? And my first few sessions, like, 
you know, they've been with previous clients, so I already kind of knew them, but I remember being like, wow, I can, I can actually somewhat feel them uh, across the computer. I mean, feel might not be the right word, but I could sense them. And yeah. it was like, whoa, there's actually something here. Absolutely. No, I mean, we spend a ton of time both in the training and then in our practices watching and observing at nuanced level, right? And that's the, sorry, it's windier. <laughs> that's the whole, um, one of the whole ways that I think of holism, like one of the ways we see the wholeness of a person. And that doesn't go away when you're online. A lot of what we're doing, and this is something I even talk about in um, other modalities like somatic experiencing psychotherapy like somatic resonance or somatic transference is as real as psychological transference so we can take on the emotions uh, of our clients in terms of i feel something when they relate to me in a certain way but we can also somatically interpret that too so if somebody's online and they're they're showing tension or they're showing an emotion our bodies are going to resonate with that it's not it doesn't even have to be a magical transference of energy it's basically just our, our deep listening skills taking place across a different medium than we're used to when we're in the office in person. Yeah. And I'm sure there's mirror neurons as well that are, are, are yeah. going on and, and all of that. Uh, that's just like, and, and I, I'm not sure, but I know that there's, this is a little out of my pay grade, but there's a, there's an aspect that as soon as we see something, our brain is processing it. And so we're actually pulling that into our, our experience on a neurological level as well, which is then going into our, into our body. Yeah. It's really important for me with clients, especially in a medium where you don't have access to their whole, their physical self to be able to ground what we're seeing and saying really deeply in a felt experience for them, because they're still trying to get their body to feel. And the only way we can change a body is to have it feel differently. You can do that just by talking. You can do that by observing, noticing, and reporting back or mirroring it. It, it's it's a fundamentally physical process, even though it's not an immediate uh, physical proximity. I don't know if you had this experience, but as I started to move in, in, in a similar way, I had some clients who either I'd already worked with them or they were so set on ideas of touch. And like I, I, I remember I had a few clients who were like in session three after seeing me, not, not that I was doing intensive, like the third or fourth session, they were like, oh, I get what you're doing here now. Like now, you know, but the first few sessions, they're like, will you shut up? <laughs> Just touch <laughs> me, stop talking. And I was trying to be like, no, I'm, I'm really working on, uh, on building awareness uh, of, you know, and unfortunately, there's no way to build awareness without bringing that into awareness of some sort uh, or no way that I know of. Uh, yeah, it's been a, it's been a challenge. Well, and, and I think one of the fundamental ways that uh, we shift states of awareness or states of being or, or shift our clients is by wrapping language around uh, unsubstantial or insubstantial physical sensation, physical experience. If you can't talk about it, it's not really in your cognitive brain. And what we're trying to do is unleash the unconscious into a conscious medium. And you have to wrap language around that for that to work. And part of it is, like you're saying, it's a contract shift in your relationship to the client. You have to prepare them to understand how it's possible for this to work that way. And that's one of the reasons I think the telehealth experience has helped me so much to clarify that contract. 
because now all of a sudden I don't have to have that go between of, well, we're a touch based practice, but we're going to talk a lot, or we're going to do some off body work or some movement work before we get to the table. Like that is a confusing paradigm for a client. And there's not a lot of um, practices or modalities that are really expressing the need for this multi-pronged approach. So we're kind of avant-garde here where we're pushing the medium. And I think that's the part of the why this is so exciting, but it's also part of why we have to be delicate in our transitions. And, and sometimes we benefit from the transitions that are forced on us, like with COVID. Well, and also, I mean, this is an awesome conversation because it's something I'm super passionate about of trying to disrupt the um, reputation that Rolfing has is that that we're we're a heavy handed you know, really pushing painful practice. And I think what's been cool, and I, I've never, I don't think, I'm, you know, I've never really felt that that's kind of the practitioner I am for sure, definitely nudge the tissue. And like, if, but if the person's lightening up and retracting, then that, that's obviously too much because they're not in their body. And, um, but also, too, you know, it's it's awesome to have returning clients and that helps with the overhead. But when I've when I've kind of seen where clients are like I'm their weekly person, I'm always having that check in of like, OK, but this work is about stepping away and owning the changes and becoming more embodied and kind of being your own authority. And how do you make changes when you're in discomfort, like, cause I, I big movement person and love to give homework and really want clients to be empowered that they don't have to rely on me to get out of pain. And I feel like what's been fortunate of this unfortunate situation with the pandemic and having to figure out how to still do the work, but now through a non-touch you know, medium, whether through Zoom or at distance is um, it, it really helps clients or gives support to clients of finding ways to become better embodied and be, have more tools. And you spoke to that a little bit in your article that's coming out. And um, I just wanted to echo that because I, I really believe that this work is really about not being dependent on a practitioner and finding ways to become better resourced and have tools. Yeah, I think actually I'm going to sneak in for a second and say, I really, there's a word you use, Nikki. I think that actually ties it all together, which was like disrupting the idea of rolfing. But part of that is also about disrupting patterns, physiological or psychological in that current process. And that's, I think, where a lot of times talk can become in handy is a way of almost shining a light on a conscious or unconscious pattern to even be like, you see, you're always turning right now. You didn't realize you're always turning right. I'm disrupting that for a moment by interjecting here, interjecting that right turn. And now you can still turn right, but you're aware you're turning right. And that's, I really like that word you used, disrupting it. It really hit home. That's exactly, exactly what I was keying in on there too. I mean, we use touch in the standard rolfing process to offer options, right? I think when practitioners, like you're saying, Nikki, have that heavy handed thing, 
to me, it's about tolerances. Like some clients can tolerate that heavy interjection, but it's still a suggestion. I don't believe that we're fundamentally changing tissue with pressure. I think we're changing nervous systems through connection, options, exploration, investigation. Like we're, we're letting people spend time with their bodies in an intentional, directed way. And that's, that can be done through multiple mediums. That's why there's a million different modalities to do this. What we're trying to do uh, or open up the practice to is to use a rolfing philosophy, which has an understanding of how bodies unfold and what is possible for a body that unfolds to operate uh, in, like what kind of experience can a body have that we have a shared understanding of and that we, if we can communicate that clearly and directly in whatever medium, I mean, what did I just say? If you whistle Yankee doodle and the person that wasn't, Ida, I think it was one of her. Is Emmett. So supposedly the story is supposedly, it was supposedly Emmett, but I mean, this is, there's so much hearsay at this point. Sure. But I mean, the, 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 I like the mythos of that. Like, if you whistle Yankee Doodle and somebody changes, is it Rolfing? And the answer is probably, in my mind, yes. And that's in large part because I think Rolfing has a philosophy that is inherently useful for a practitioner, especially when it's an embodied one. And the practitioner has done the work to embody those principles. Yeah, I mean, this is actually one of the questions when I was reading your article that I wanted to sort of talk about. I'm, I'm clearly biased on it, but I'm open to, to being biased in a different way is like, I'm trying to find the right way to word it. Like, I think that even if we, if we, if we move to doing hands off rolfing or hands on hands off, whatever you, but if you like that, still the initial learn, the education of going in and learning the, uh, the learning that education, uh, learning hands on as a, as a way of informing the practitioner of, of how to, of how the body is in a way. And so there's like, I want to make sure it's it's heard that we're not saying like, get rid of the old, there's just, you know, and it's actually like, you, to some extent, it's that old way of you need technique to forget technique, right? Mm-hmm. And so you, 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 the, the, my education, although I'm doing something entirely different now, um, I wouldn't be able to see what I, I would likely not be able to see what I see had I not been in that uh, that process that was then informing me of all this, this other otherness. Right. Well, and, and to play with that, I think it's the same as learning craniosacral and integrating it into a rolling practice. It's the same as uh, learning movement work and building it into a practice. The fundamental aspect of this is being with a person in an embodied state. So becoming embodied, I think is best facilitated physically. Absolutely. I think our training reflects that. <laughs> My recollection of Rolfing school is basically walking around in a circle with people asking me how I'm feeling. Right. I mean, that is at its fundamental level, a practice of learning how to be in yourself, how to feel yeah. yourself to your edges. Yeah. Although there is that what I am recognizing is the three of us are Rolfers. So we also have the implicit bias because we've gone For through sure. that and may not necessarily know another way. That being said, I, right. I agree with you. Well, and, and this is the trick, like, so in somatic experiencing, uh, to bring that in, when I'm in the training there, it is a sit down and listen to lecture training, right? There's practices and modalities, but it's primarily psychotherapists in the room and there's a smattering of body workers. And what we had to offer coming from this different viewpoint is this ability to really parse at a really 
I, I keep saying nuance, but it's like at an incremental level, this person is embodying their breath up to this point. And I know that the clavicle is not moving because I have studied that clavicles have a rotational movement. And I, I've touched a clavicle when it's moving and I've touched a clavicle when it can't move. And so having that level of specificity, which you can only gain with time, practice on the body, et cetera, allows me to be that much more nuanced in my observation. And that's what I was able to offer in those classes was here's a viewpoint when you can actually see that this person is triggered. You can actually see that this person is showing you something different than what they're saying. And if I can use that gulf of, of the difference between movement and portrayal, then I can offer the clients something that they don't have yet, which is an awareness of their bodily experience in a difficult situation, which is why I think we have something to say that's, as body workers. Yeah, that's so great. And I'm sorry for bromancing on there, Nikki. I keep I'm just so excited here, obviously. <laughs> um, but like, I, I mean, I, I had this client the other day who was a PhD uh, psychotherapist, right? Like, and it shocked me how, and this is me putting my ideas on, but, but how, how zero the body was not even involved in her own body awareness was not there. And whenever I would ask, kind of like, would ask her, like, what are you aware of? It would be, everything was good. Mm, yeah. Uh, and, and the body was frozen, you know, like, like in my experience, it would have frozen body and, and, and I'm not judging her. Like there's a reason why and all that, but it was so surprising to me that from a, someone who spent so much time in the, in the field of, of, of health, right. That, and, and there is this, um, like when I'm hearing you about the SE practitioners, there is this sort of sense of like, you know, it's, it's all about how we're relating to the world. And it's like, but that's, you know, and the mind relates to the world. It's like, yeah, but the body is in relation to the mind and therefore in relation to the world. Uh, so why are we not looking at this whole phenomenological beingness, you know? Um, but again, we're biased because that's what, what brought us in. We are. And, but I think we also get to be biased. I mean, I, I try to stay good at what I'm good at and I let psychotherapists be great at what they're great at. Like I, I delight in not having to talk about setting boundaries and family systems and working through relationship issues. Like that is not what I'm good at. I haven't spent two, three, seven years studying those kinds of relationships. What I have done is studying the relationship between breath and movement. And I can talk at length about how that affects uh, relationships and all these kind of um, psychological aspects, but I'm always coming at it from a physiological standpoint. And that's that juice that we get to have. And so if, if we're biased, it's great to acknowledge it. I think it's important. Um, but we also need to know that we have something to offer that is different than what's generally available when you're talking about these more psychological realms. Yeah. And I, you know, just again, to echo what you just said that I think is so profound and what we can offer is how emotions are crafted in our body experience and how, and just, I, I look at a cultural perspective and, you know, and, you know, what the, the bio psychosocial model, I mean, that kind of encompasses it all, but I'm working with a young individual, a young you know, preteen and who has some spinal um, deviations, scoliosis. And it's really interesting when I ask questions like, what, how do you feel? What is it like? And it's like, and it's a lot of like, I don't know. I don't know. Different. 
I don't know. And so there's a lot of I don't knows. And then but coming up with those questions to really kind of find that that spark in this being of like, oh, this this is different. Like and I, you know, and I am constantly I have young kids they're five and eight, but definitely with the, with the pandemic, I did the homeschooling zoom school with them and just seeing how their bodies in that early developmental phase in their life and where the time that the pandemic hit, especially with my oldest who did actually, I had a preschooler, so he wasn't really in the zoom world, but like just how much his world became so much more immersed in YouTube, social media and kind of the social media versus with what it's exposing you to. I mean, he's navigating the computer way quicker than I ever would want him to, but also seeing how that's shaping his structure and coming like from a rolfer, you know, I'm kind of seeing how his body's kind of slumped over and how he's like in that kind of collapse into the screen and working with him and, yeah. And just the, the conversations, like, what do you want to be? Uh, oh, I want to be an influencer. And I'm like, well, yeah. <laughs> so I think there's something actually really something I've been working with about that. You hit you. You've, I'm going to dance around is the there's nothing wrong with being an influencer. But what's what I've sort of noticed is a lot of the people who are doing that. And actually, I think it goes way back for social media. When you look at even talking heads, right, talking heads, not the band, but but talking heads, people on TV, it's the head. And that the body is generally not even involved. And what I end up watching with so many of these influencers and these people on, when I watch these interviews, is there's no there's no body, and everything is cut off. Not every. I mean, I was there's some people who are very uh, very embodied, but much of it it's an act. And so it's it's a being of of how you are perceived to be as opposed to how you are which to me is the lack of embodiment. And so we're going into this way where people are having to perform all the time on a screen for attention, which is about getting out of our experience into creating another experience, but that's not the, the purest. And not that it's bad to be an actor by any means, but when, when it becomes your, your modus operandi, there's, there's any, and you don't know how to go back. I mean, I've talked to actors, I've worked with some actors who, part of their character stays with them, uh, which means that there's some, there's, there's a, there's a disconnect with themselves with, with what they're presenting in a way. I may, I may have gotten off. Of yeah. Well, no, and the degree to which that's unconscious is the degree to which there's opportunity for change. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Which I actually, I, mean, I think, I think what was beautiful with what Nikki was saying, where you ask people and they say, I don't know, I don't know. I actually encourage that a lot for my clients because I don't know implies an un, an awareness of an unawareness, which is still an awareness as opposed to hmm, good, fine. Okay. Like I'm done there. But when they're like, ah, I, I'm not really sure. I'm like, great, great. Be there. We're going to slowly build that out. But the, uh, the unawareness, the, the awareness of unawareness is still awareness. Yeah. Well, and, and, not to hijack the topic, but I, I recognize at some point in this transition between rolfing and going to trauma work that I was, uh, I had been deeply unaware of what I now consider the origins of some of these patterns that I was seeing, right? Like 
there is in in and and this is maybe uncouth to say in the rolfing circles, but I, I think there is still a lot of bodies should look like Rolf's bodies, and a Rolf's body looks like an upright body, and I absolutely subscribe to that subscribe to that for years and years and years and try to emulate that and felt disembodiment because of that it wasn't who i was and when i tried to be that i was pushing against a, a gradient and and finally seeing that and recognizing that as in my mind trauma i mean this is a trauma writ large not not the narrow definition of it but seeing that it's a part of a, how a person adapts their body to an environment to an experience to an internal experience and beginning to be able to work with that perception that's shaping posture or shaping reality has to me opened up the ability that I now feel to change somebody without having to push against them or use force. I guess that's, that's my mm -hmm. bias and writ large, but that's, that's, I think, in a really important piece that we're all struggling to work with in some way. Yeah. And first, let me just say, it's impossible for you to hijack any conversation, Kevin. You are the guest. You do control the, the narrative today. Um, so you can, um, well, I like no, where I mean, you guys are going, though, too. I just it's a great place. It's there's a lot, a lot of movement around here. But I, so I'm going to try to I'm going to try to reword what you said in, in the way that I see it. And I'd love feedback from both yeah. of you, which is like a rough a rough body or an embodied body is really just about however embodied it can be at this moment. It's not about having a specific structure. It's about how, how much lack and lack freedom can it, can it, can it have? And the hardest part for me is that resonance that I see in a client is not logical. It's felt. And so like, it's like, Oh, uh, this seems great it may not match a line like oh this should have be at three inches and this should be straight but there's a presence of of life uh, even if it's a restricted it's like that's as open as it can likely be today uh there's no real formula <laughs> besides feeling uh and that doesn't make any sense because there's no words for it and there's no formula and yet it is. I mean, so that's kind of how I'm hearing or how I'm echoing it back. And please share. There, I think you're right. I mean, that's allowing things to be relative, right? A person can look in a certain way and relatively feel exactly how we would ask them to feel at the end of a session. It doesn't really matter how their body presents. I think the thing that has drawn me into this trauma world more and more and more is the ability to predict experience in the body based on patterns that are visible or or that you can witness either in thought or posture or reaction because the one thing i think i suffered from in rolfing a little bit was in looking at somebody i was creating all these really pretty complex models of understanding i mean we have all kinds of internal versus external models and core versus sleeve and all this stuff that has value. And maybe I'm just making a whole nother one, but understanding physiological physiology from an under uh, a standpoint of trauma, which is really to say, how does the autonomic nervous system affect a person's ability to adapt to the environment they're in? If I can understand how that autonomic nervous system is generally adapting to a given stimulus, 
like a threat response. I'm able to predict how they're going to work. And by doing that ahead of a client's actual experience, A, I get to them, I validate their experience of whatever it is that they're going through. Like if I say, hey, I see that you have a relatively closed posture. You're using all your flexors whenever you're noticing that you're uncomfortable or threatened. Boy, I wonder what it would be like if you found your extensors. What happens if you listen to the sounds behind you as you're sitting here with me? That's a typical Rolf movement thing, but I'm using it from a threat response system that's saying flexors are attached to defensive mechanisms in the body. And this person is looking defensive, even though I know I'm just talking to them in their living room on the internet, right? The ability to predict those patterns of behavior and then engage with them in meaningful ways to actually allow for change has been the medium that allowed me both to, I think, grow my practice exponentially, which is because people were feeling that sense of validation and understanding from a situation or place where they'd never seen that before. Or it's just because uh, I feel confident in my ability as a both a rolfer and a trauma person, trauma worker to uh, have a sense of, I know what I'm doing. And I think all of us get there somewhere or another and it doesn't have to be trauma work, but having an internalized sense of, I got this and I feel confident in it has been magical for me, I would say. Well, I think this conversation is just really highlighting the, the strength that we have, like Rolfing, if we want to call it like the brand name of structural integration, but what we're doing is fostering structural integration. And that's going to look different because bodies, you know, are influenced and shaped differently. I mean, one of the kind of big motivators for me to go into Rolfing was because I really, I got to, I was exposed to occupational therapy and I was like, I'm not doing school all over again. Rolfing kind of seems similar, but my influence was that because I happened to have a brother who became quadriplegic and he, he was one of my earliest practice clients. And so, but going through the training and understanding the principles and building that into a body that is, you know, neurologically not going to be, you know, walking in our classic contralateral gait that we're always looking for, but how do I find, how do I help this individual become better structurally integrated and through working with him, my brother felt my confidence working with that population. So I have worked on a fair amount of people who are paralyzed to some degree, but mostly wheelchair bound um, and get to hear like how they're finding a new way of being structurally integrated. And, you know, for some of them, well, I guess everyone that I have worked on was an able body prior so I've never worked on anybody who was born disabled, um, quadriplegic or paraplegic. Um, so, yeah, I, I think what we're because well, as I'm have, we're having this conversation, you know, the little little voice is like, OK, but is this really is this really structural integration? I don't know. We're not touching. Can we call this structural integration? Kind but of I think that, some of the old. I think that, that ties in. I think that ties into, sorry to cut you off, but that's like the, and maybe you're saying this, but like, that's what Kevin, I think was getting at with that old story of like, of, of Emmett talking to, to, to Ida and saying like, if I saw the periosteum had to release the hip and I wished and I went in the corner and whistled Yankee Doodle Dandy, would it be, and it happened, would it be Rolfing? Um, and, and that she said, yeah, I think it, or she said, what do you think? And he said, I think it would. And she said, yeah, I think it would be too. Um, 
you know, I, it's the, the biggest issue I've sort of struggled with when people say, what is rolfing? And I give them some sort of a thing, but it's like it could contain the way that I understand it. It could contain. It's really just about how how do you find how do you help someone find freedom in their physiological secular or their psychocorporal experience? Which that case could be I could sit in the corner and blink my eyes three times, and if somehow there was a change in my body that resonated a change in their body, sure. But like that's so. Effing broad. This is what happens when I come back to Boston. I just swear all the time. It's so broad that like it doesn't actually tell you anything unless you've been through it. And so then it's like, what is the point? <laughs> what is the point of words if you can't actually express something? Yet that's as best as you can ex- express it. And I don't know if that's where you're going with Nikki, but I, I just was called to no, be. It, it is, and I, I, yes, totally. And I would love to hear from you, Kevin with, you know, having a rolfing background, movement background, somatic experiencing, and also read that you also, which I've taken um, a, a dive and studying with the pain, explain pain, pain science. And for, I would love to hear your take on how do we explain pain? Especially if, you know, if someone's really feeling it and because you are kind of in more of this non-touch medium right now so you're not really like touching on and like you know working with the pain spot how do you how do you explain pain to people who are physically feeling pain somewhere in their body and then having to explain well that could actually be in your head (laughs) without being dismissive right right it's all in your head but that doesn't mean it's not real um okay so the the way I, I, this is a, uh, one of my influences is also Zen Buddhism, right? And one of the things one of my teachers said that has always stuck with me is that pain and suffering are not the same thing. And we add suffering to pain. Suffering we are able to alleviate. Pain is something we may have to live with. And so I take that as kind of an axiom in that I am here to help people avoid suffering. I can't always help them avoid pain. And that was always true in my rolfing practice too. I mean, there were shoulders I could free up and there was, um, there are, you know, lesions that can be uh, released, but fundamentally I'm trying to help people feel agency where pain is taken away. And that lack of agency is, I think, one of the big um, creators of suffering or how people experience their pain. Um, So particularly. That's so, I'm just, that's, I've never heard it that way before. And that's that pain suffering uh is awesome so right i know yeah i I can't claim it i just love it (laughs) it is it's it's a fundamentally uh it creates agency in the person who understands it right um and this that goes i'm trying to track there was something we were talking about just before the pain conversation started it'll come back but uh so in the article that's coming out in the journal, I, I kind of did a mini case study of a client I had who had come in with jaw pain. And I, this is a person I met online, never have never seen them in person. And they did have a 90% or so reduction in pain. I mean, it was a real, real fundamental change. But part of it was that the majority of it really was that this person was still experiencing the conditions that led up to the pain, the, the experience they had in trying to they had surgery to 
try to fix the issue that was it was all a jaw problem and their jaw had to be surgically broken and re knit back together twice uh and that was um the suffering out of that was that this person was terrified of their experience they were terrified of the second surgery when it happened which happened without enough anesthesia without enough uh lead time and and these are the kind of things that i think most of our clients if not not all but most of them have some level of this where they had the accident or they had the change or they had the i woke up one morning and my back stopped working but wrapped around that is this shell of uh and then i didn't know what to do and i had to go to five people and they didn't help me and uh i am to this day unable to do the things i wish i could do that i used to do that made me feel good and it's those things that i know i can start to work with sometimes that alleviates the actual pain experience that they first came in the door with but generally what we're trying to do is broaden their experience of their situation to include elements of their of their condition that they can work with control adjust alleviate and that's what i think i can really get to would it be would it be too simplistic to say that pain is a physiological occurrence and suffering is the psychological uh um uh i don't know so we're not justification but like viewing of the occurrence and so that the, the suffering of the pain yeah 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 and so that or of any like of, of, and so that the the you can reframe the pain and therefore see it as pain but recognize it as a as an occurrence neither having a good right. or bad and, and and maybe even sort of learning i don't want to say learning to deal with it that might belittle it um but it's it's when the mind is in in its story or in this experience that that's when the pain becomes suffering otherwise it's just it's just an occurrence i don't want to say it's just an occurrence i'm not belittling pain pain is not comfortable um right. but that it's it's that suffering is the the the, the mental the psychological the whatever that i'm going to say that pain would be the physiological and suffering is the metaphysical and and i would both agree with that and i also challenge it a little bit in that neurobiologically and there are people who can speak to this much greater length than i can but my understanding too is that what we're experiencing is pain is a product of the brain and a product of the brain is this we're getting nociceptors activating which tells the body something's off right and then we're either sensitizing the nervous system to that or desensitizing the nervous system to that and and as we actually decrease the experience of suffering which is what you're talking about like as we allow a person to have agency and as we make their their situation safer and more understandable and we wrap language around it all those things are having a physical effect in the brain as well the same nociceptive influence from a part of the body that we're experiencing as pain can be felt as pain one day and if we can create a new dynamic or a new environment it can be experienced as just a bothersome itch or nothing the next day even though the information yeah. from the body is the same so yes, yeah i think you're absolutely yeah. right but i do want to, i don't ever want to lose the biological importance of changing a psychological situation yeah yeah I, I sometimes say to clients like when they're trying to when i'm working with this i might say like if i hit them on the leg they'd be like oh what's wrong and really angry and i'd say oh but there was a mosquito and they say oh it's right. so good thank exactly. you exactly there you go it's like that's it. that 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 shift that's exactly it and that can happen for something as crazy as a surgery or or something along those lines right the surgery was here to help me i'm really glad i got this surgery i would not be able to be who i am today without the surgery even though the surgery hurt me so much you know that's a very different experience and going back to you know how how our experiences are influenced by our surroundings i mean i 
and not to, again, be dismissive of someone who truly felt traumatized. So I, you know, I mentioned I have kids being in the holistic wellness. I, of course, was like, oh, I'm going to try to go drug free and blah, 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 blah. I had very medical deliveries and I, you know, and I had a C-section and I thought it was so fascinating. I, not that I really want to go through surgery like that again, but I was like, okay, this is, this is how it's going down and I'm going to be open to it. And whenever, and then of course I meet a, a lot of other moms who feel like their, their body failed them or, just the fact that they had a C-section, that that was like hugely traumatic. And I'm like, well, why? Like, what is your true story? Forget about what the rest, and especially being, I think, in Boulder, where, you know, there's a lot of like, you know, pat on the back if you've, you've did it, you know, drug-free and at home in a tub. <laughs> so, and those, again, those are probably very beautiful experiences too. But I'm, I, I'm, often nudging the the languaging around you know in this particular case with deliveries like just because it was a surgery and different doesn't necessarily make it a traumatic experience but I think the but so I challenged the narrative a little bit of like no make it your own like don't forget about what the rest of the world has said about how you should have been delivering a baby what is your personal experience? And was that truly traumatic? And it's been fun just with some parents that, or moms um, who deliver that that way, really were grateful to have that conversation because they're like, yeah, wait, what? I was subscribing to a narrative that wasn't really mine. And when I look back at it, it was a great experience. Mm-hmm. So, and, 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 and I mean, it's, um, it's like you said, challenge the narrative, the, the, the voice of the masses is seen as the best, but it's really like, no, that's just what's popular. And I, you know, I was having this talk with someone the other day. I was like, Galileo was not popular. You know, he was crazy. He's completely crazy. But yet we subscribed to him now at that point he was. And so there's this like similar when I have clients and they sort of go on stuff. I, and I'm, I'm working on a better way to say this, but I sort of say the only time your body has ever failed you is when you're dead. And more or less, and I know it's not the best way to say it, I'm working on it, but more or less, whatever your body is doing, it's doing as best as it knows how. And so you're, 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 you're really, it's not that it's failed you, it's that it's doing what it knows or however best it can. And so really change that narrative of this is bad, this is good, to, this, is, this is, and so how can I relate more to isness and, and have a improvement towards how I see improvement or a disimprovement to how I, you know, I, I don't see improvement. I had a therapist once who said she loved working with people who had deep trauma, lots of trauma, because she said, all of them have made it this far. I trust their bodies to keep them going because they had to make it this far to even get to see me. And I I'd absolutely subscribe to that. You know, I, I think one of the things we have in our toolbox as body workers is time and context. And especially with, uh, something like the 10 series where we also are asking a person to return and then to return to the same territory and just expand that territory a little bit each time, but also revisit all the different systems that are present in any one session in the next session and, and building on that. We can take that into these larger contexts too, where it's like, okay, so yeah, we're talking about surgery and we're talking about how 
if you are looking at it from a certain viewpoint, it's positive. If it's not positive, why? Right. And and one of the big things that has helped me open up my rolfing practice into this larger context is if I can really ask the why questions, even those are a little bit, they can take me out of my scope of practice. They can take me out of necessarily where I think I can do meaningful work. At least I'm offering this person an opportunity to reflect on their own experience. If I have somebody who's gotten a C-section and it's deeply traumatizing versus somebody who's been able to have one and experiences as positive, that's telling me a lot about that person as a whole. If that person who doesn't experience it as beneficial, what is it in their system that is scared? Why are they scared? Why are they still hurting years after the fact? If I can get to the nugget there and start to support them in a in an experience of their system as, like you said, Andrew, uh, always having done the best they could. It's just that those those compensations aren't supporting their system's health now. But if we understand and have compassion for the fact that this person has been through their own unique experience and can relate to that from this wholly contextual fabric that we weave together in our sessions, I think we have a way of touching into things most people don't get a chance to feel, don't have a lot of experience with in healthcare type situations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We're, we're contextual beings and we need to be treated as such. Body work offers a way to do that without a lot of uh, caveats that other systems have where there's more boundaries and, and less um, broad ability to engage. Yeah. And now I want to like, I want to highlight something that I've heard a, a few times and I want to um, enrich it, which body work can, roughing can, but through what lens and, and, if, and when you're a hammer, everything's a nail. And I think we're all like trauma informed people. So I think it's really to, 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 you know, if we have to add the label of like trauma informed or polyvagal informed or somatically informed, whatever that it's, you know, because a lot of roughing isn't helpful. In fact, it, it, it can be, I shouldn't say a lot, some rolfing, I'm working on my, my, my verbiage a lot. Some rolfing is actually detrimental, which is partly why some of the reputation is there. Um, and so when the rolfers start to get, or the body workers or whatever, start to become more informed of the experiential beingness of a human and how, you know, I think I talked to you this before, Kevin, I think I mentioned this in the podcast. I, I tried to stop using the word trauma because I saw it as a loaded word that people were like, I'm, I've been, you know, they were like identifying as trauma survivors as a badge, uh, not that that's wrong, but there was, you know, and there's coping mechanisms. And I was trying to take that away from them to help them grow so that the badge wasn't weighing them down. And I just would say trauma is just, you know, uh, essentially the shortness. It was a, a process that uh, an experience of life that was never processed. And so looking at this life experience that hasn't fully been digested, hasn't fully been processed, um, but using that lens as opposed to just fucking plowing through and like, I'm going to like push tissue and you're going to have a cathartic experience and that's helpful. And it's like, no. And, and, and I believe the three of us, when we talk about body work and we talk about rolfing, it, we're talking about, well, you know, informed of, of this. Yet I want to just put that, that little caveat on there because some people listening may not be aware of that. And I think it's really important to, to add that suffix onto it. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really important to also though, acknowledge that at least, and this is, this is maybe deeper than it needs to go, 
But at least at the Rolf Institute, my understanding is that it's a progressive approach to incorporating elements that we discover as important into the body of work that we call Rolfing. So that's why we have um, paradigms, right? An uh, energetic paradigm, a uh, manual paradigm, and a movement paradigm. I think one of the things we do need to point out is that, and, and I agree again with your definition of trauma, like it, the, the, there's a dearth of language. There's a lack of enough appropriate language. I use trauma in a broad sense. I call it lower T trauma, like everybody has. And I say basically everybody has some level of it. And I say that because in my experience, trauma is simply an overwhelm, an ability, inability of the system to manage whatever it's experiencing in real time at the time it happens, right? It's, an, it's a processing error, just like you said. In that sense, everybody has it. And in that sense, if we're not attending to it on a table or on video or whatever, we are missing a significant element of our client's experience. And we are plowing through tissue when in fact, we're actually plowing through protective patterns. One of the reasons our clients get off the table looking better than they did when they got on it. And then when we see them walk into their car, it's all back is the fact that we were taking away a pattern that their body sees as absolutely necessary. And that to me is a crime. I mean, I, 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 I use strong language because I feel very strongly about this, but we are missing the fact that most of our clients are resisting some of our work, not because we're doing it wrong or because they're unable to take it, but because we're trying to take away something that at that point is important for them. It is not essential that they keep that thing. Our job is to like change that. But how we change that needs to have the awareness of the system that we're working on. And that system is a tra traumatized system, regardless of what their story is. We need to have the tools in our toolkit to acknowledge that and then work with it skillfully. It doesn't mean we're psychotherapists and it doesn't mean we're outside of our scope of practice. It's an essential component of our work. And I think it needs to be validated as such. Thank you. That's my soapbox. Well, and I think it, it's very true. I mean, I, I think that's part of our structural integration education. And I said this in an earlier podcast, in, um, and it's shaped a lot of how I look at patterns. But in my early training, it, we were told often what limits us is what serves us. And really recognizing those patterns. And I think, however, I mean, we're all living beings. I mean, we're going to be subjected to trauma to some degree, whether it's a, you know, capital T, little t. And we can find resolution around it, but it's not to say that we're not ever going to get triggered and have a moment of something that will, that will remind us or, you know, bring that back on. I think what the job that we have is to not live with it in the moment that we get triggered, that we're able to like shake it off, just like what we, you know, Peter Levine talks about in his work of like with the, the animal, the deer that was about to get hit by the car didn't get hit. What did they do with that, that reactive energy, shake it off. So us humans have, you know, different ways of doing it. We could be an actual virtual, like really like literally a shake or whatever tools that feel right for them. And I think that's that's part of being a structural integrated being because we're integrating all the different variables of life and how do we have those variables and still operate in some kind of structural integrity without you know collapsing into it. Right, and I think this is too uh, 
when I talk about being a body worker who doesn't work on bodies, I mean it literally, right? Like I'm working with your physiology. If you're sitting in front of me and you're having a trauma response, my job is to help you moderate that trauma response in a way that is both uh, health oriented, um, effective, uh, intuitive, um, and and functional, right? And and in order to do that, I have to have enough understanding of how that system works at a physiological level to be able to engage with it in a meaningful way. I was not taught that in rolfing school, right? I, I'm glad to hear that at least something in your experience pointed you to that. I My experience was that when a person had a catharsis, a cathartic moment or was overwhelmed, the practitioner was told to either slow down or pause or cover the client blanket or give them some time. And while that's that's doing no harm, right? And I appreciate that. It's not an active engagement with that person's nervous system. And as a structural integrator, I think that I'm working on helping a nervous system adapt. And that's why the body changes. Yeah, if I can and, and, do that, yeah, go ahead. And just to say, like, I mean, I'm with, I'm with you 100, percent and just because I think you and I both like to expand awareness, well, come off sort of devil's advocate. It's not that. It's just to say, I, I don't know if the, if the Rolf Institute or other body work experiences, uh, uh, institutes, schools can offer that because um, they've already they already have a great program at however many hours, and you know, it's a lot to ask of people. What, whether there's a part of me that always kind of not always was started to feel like they should have a continuing education class, maybe mm-hmm. that's Absolutely. that's also like required for advanced training, um, where you dive more into that. I think part of the issue is that most of the rolfers I know are completely dis- dysregulated, <laughs> but that's a that's a side story. But I, you know, I I just I don't want to like poo poo on the school because of what they're limited to as as well. Um, and at the same point, like, yeah, I'm so lucky, so lucky that I found other parts of which I think the Rolf movement training can really incorporate a lot of this. Um, right. You know, I am lucky. I think I shared this before I had a, uh, in one of my Rolf movement trainings two years after my basic training. One of the ladies that was in my class, she's like, you I feel like you matured to, you know, 25 years in two years. And it, it was because I, I was so unregulated. I mean, I still am, but I was so much more unregulated and that wasn't being dealt with at all. Uh, and I right. got fortunate that, that you know, I found a good therapist and I found good body work ways that were heavily, and then I found Dr. Porges, um, you know, um, but I, I just, I'm with you. I just don't want to like shit on the Institute more than it already gets because of their limitations as well. I agree. I, I guess part of what I'm saying is without have I, I think, no, you're absolutely right. I do think we're poor at incorporating these paradigms that are outside of the manual. I will say that with confidence because the energetic taxonomy has had an uphill battle for, I don't know how long. I'm not necessarily practicing in that, but I recognize its existence and I recognize that it took a lot of extra personal effort to get there. That said, I think that is on the practitioner. You get to choose the curriculums that you choose. And you're right. The, the, the training is a basic fundamentals training. It is not an advanced training in and of itself. That said, I do love the fact that movement has an ability to speak to this. Uh, Nikki, we both talked about Monica being one of the practitioners who taught us a lot. I was in Brazil as well, learning my movement from her. And, and her movement 
sessions looked like the work I'm doing today as a trauma uh, oriented practitioner. Her ability to parse what movement was showing of the emotional experience of the person to engage with that movement, the movement, not the emotion, but the movement to allow for a different set of outcomes, which then allowed the person, the client to experience their own reality differently in a course of an hour was just remarkable. And the way she could talk about it and knit together these frameworks into a core a conceivable whole was just like what I think is possible in our educational system. There does need to be some level of narrowing our, our, our scope or what we're actually trying to teach. But I, I, want to, I wanted to see when I was on a table shaking or a client in a practice session at the trauma at the, the, the Alvaro Institute was experiencing overwhelm. I want to see the word trauma being included in there. So at least it's something people know to look for and then seek out further training. I guess that's, uh, I can be okay with that as major beef. Yeah. And, and I recognize I was one of the fewer people who got to take advantage of the unique training of being, getting my dual certification. So having the role for the, the, the structural integrated component weaved in real time with Rolf movement. I do. I know I got a different education. Also, Lael King being a somatic mm-hmm. experience yeah. practitioner. So that was really in the classroom for us and for someone. And, you know, I, you know, went out, had a practice for many years and then later came back and was part of the teaching, the phase one teaching team for about six years. So, and then, you know, assisted some phase two teachers. I'm pretty aware of what's being taught recently. And again, different teachers have a little different influence or slant. So some, some classes get more peppered with the, the languaging around how to actually talk about trauma and someone who's actually having an experience of trauma or whether the client's actually really feeling it, but you're seeing it in the body, there's more, there's it's great difference, but for sure. Um, Glad to hear and, that. you know, to recognize too, Rolfing, I mean, it's, I, again, being in Boulder where there's like tons of Rolfers and, and it's still pretty amazing, all the different, um, opinions or thoughts of what it is, what it actually isn't. But I have a friend who, two two different friends who their experience is knowing it about being super, you know, emotional. And they're like, I'm just not in the mood to get on the table and start crying. I'm like, like, it doesn't have to be painful. It's, and they're like, no, no, I'm just not ready to do that experience. And right. Um, where there's right. other people who are like, yeah, it's super painful. I'll never want to do that. Well, and that's, <laughs> and I think like, that's a really good point too, though. I mean, like we have to be, uh, I get on the soapbox about let's talk about trauma and let's do that. And, and absolutely. Some people don't want to do that and they don't have to, I, I, I absolutely should allow for that possibility and that eventuality. Like the, the, <laughs> the, the idea to me is of resourcing. So this is a somatic experience thing, but you resource a client before you ask them to do something hard. Right. You out, you get somebody on a table and you give them a good experience. They don't have to cry every time they get on the table and they feel like this is my body alive with energy. This is my body experiencing the room as a positive, beneficial thing. We need that in our systems. 
we need that more than we need uh, deep, dark shadow work. We need to feel connected to life. And so however somebody does that and whatever they get out of their rolfing experience, whether it's trauma, energetic, manual movement, as long as they're connecting with that sense of aliveness, I do think that we're touching on exactly what we need to. I guess it's just my hope that there is then an ability to acknowledge the things that may also be supportive of that person's change or, or transition. I mean, how I hear it when you say we're sort of touching on what we need to, I think you could say that we're touching into presence. Yeah. Right. Well, I think we're asking for presence <laughs> to show up in the body. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was just more making the joke because that's the name of our show in case you want to. Oh, is it that. really? Well, thank <laughs> you. Sorry. I thought it was Thanks. the Andrew and Nikki hour. So I'm, I'm happy to hear. I mean, today it's really like, yeah, yeah. I mean, no, it, 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 it was partly a joke, but partly also like, I've said this before, I, I didn't really fully plan on this name. And as it sort of came to be, it has numerous ways it could be said, but part of it is just what you said about like, what are we doing? But we're, we're, we're touching into the presence of, uh, of, of life and of another human being in relation to it. Um, and when I, um, you know, what I noticed there, there are certain times, there are certain calls that I never want to end. I'm like, let's just stay on this, this three way forever. Uh, and, you know, there is time and we all have work and life and stuff. Uh, I'm going to echo back uh, to what I said at the beginning of the call, which is like, I already know, and it's not just the coffee, but I already know when I get off the phone, I'm going to be beaming. I'm already like, my body is so alive, so excited from this call, from being in conversation with both of you, for for going over what I what I believe to be true and reinforcing that, from hearing other ways of seeing, and just from really, I think from being in a relationship with three uh, or two other nervous systems that are working themselves out, that are that are that are present, that are excited. But that are that are not like hitting highs and lows, but really in this beautiful state of presence. And so I, I know when we're done, I'm going to get off, and my wife and I are going to do something, and I'm going to have a shit-eating grin because I'm just feeling I'm feeling resourced. I'm feeling really nourished by this conversation. Likewise. Same. Yes, I think um, these conversations are always so fun, and especially looking at the the greater scope of who we've had as guests and coming from the Dr. Ida Rolf Institute, formerly known as the Rolf Institute, Guild and KMI, all, all of this. And it is coming back to, and it, coming back to how do we find structural integration? And for, and that's what I think what's beautiful about our work is different practitioners can pepper it, style it, in a way that matches who their strengths are. And I think to some, to some degree, people might think, oh, structural integration is all over the place, but I don't really think it is. It's that our founder, Dr. Ida Rolf, found, you know, really crafted this later in her life. And in some ways it was left incomplete and we get to, as you know, generations beyond her and in her honor get to acknowledge that you know because she has said it and is in her publications that the structural integration isn't just the body that there is the movement component the psychology component but those all weren't really fully developed because 
She was like in her eighties, I think. But, but, but also what, what is, what is movement, but a body, it, it, you need a body to have movement. What is psychology, but the processing for, for the body? Like, this is why I think it's like Rolfing is all over the place. It's like, yeah, you could see it that way. Or you could take a step back and sort of see this, this thing of like, oh, how, you know, this is where eco psychology, I think drives into it. So sort of say how are relations of things together there was another thing I, I was really excited about. I was going to say, uh, but I forgot what it was. So I'll stop. <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I think we are all messy. And I think that's part of our benefit. I think humans adapt to whatever they uh, experience. And that is what we're seeing and working with in our clients. We're helping them to adapt in ways that they choose rather than in ways that they unconsciously experience. And I think we do that in the in the medium that we feel best um, able to work in. I found my medium in trauma. Other people find their mediums in manual therapy. I don't think there's a wrong answer. I'm grateful to be part of a community that can have a dialogue that includes all of this messiness and still comes out come, like with the sense that we can do something to support and heal others. I think this is a calling and whatever that happens to be, it's great to do so in community. And I'm just grateful that you guys are here to help this conversation continue. And, and I think that's where I was, what I forgot that I remembered, which is sort of like we said, oh, well, the Rolf Institute doesn't have this. It's like, no, they don't. But like without tooting our own horn, like part of these talks are for that. So people going into body work, whether it's Rolfing or other, have an access to say, great, you've got this. And this is this arm over here. So come listen to Kevin talk about this experience. And then you can think about that. You don't have to incorporate it, but you can think about that for your experience. And that's a real a real gift of this, you know, we're a small, we're a small talk show, but you know, when we hear, when we get that feedback of like, I'm really loving what you're doing. I really learned that it is uh, it's, it's worth it. Absolutely. Well, in the great, in the name of this great, beautiful mess of life and how we process, I wanted to just close with saying that it was, Super fun to to meet you virtually and to have this conversation and look forward to the article that's going to come out. Yeah. Well, and it's just a pleasure to be here with you both. Thanks so much. Thanks, uh, Kevin, and um, have a, a great day out there. Thanks for listening to us at Touching Into Presence. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. You can find out more about Kevin at mendmn.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd appreciate if you'd leave a positive review of the podcast and subscribe to it through the platform of your choice. When you do this, it really helps other people find us, and we greatly appreciate your support. We look forward to hearing back from you and seeing you on our next conversation at Touching Into Presence. Bye for now.